That was powerful this morning. So I appreciate the, the worship and song, preparing our hearts uh, for uh, the word of God and uh, creating a, a space for the spirit of God to move. I want to thank you for being here tonight. I know that it takes some effort to get to church in a year like 2022. And so I'm thankful that you made the effort to come out tonight and certainly don't want to try to waste your time this week. Uh, really, uh, my, my heart is for you to come and uh, for us to worship, to kind of tune our hearts, to sync our hearts uh, with uh, with, with the Lord's, and uh, then to, to learn something from his word. And so uh, I'm going to try to just get straight to the book each night. And uh, so I appreciate you being here uh, this, uh, this evening. I just wanted to say real quick, thank you, Pastor Cox, for inviting me to come. And it's always a privilege to be with you folks uh, and uh, love your family. And uh, um, not many pastors are brave enough to schedule a revival meeting on their son's 10th birthday. But, uh, but Miles is going to be okay. He's going to forgive us for that one. So anyways, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah tonight, if you could. And uh, we're going to go to chapter two here in just a moment. So Jeremiah chapter number two, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter number two. In the 13th year of King Josiah, um, uh, he decides to upheave the idols of Judah, and Josiah leads the nation in a revival. He purges their temples of the false sacrifices, and uh, he kind of goes into maniac mode as he crumbles the idols and uh, sweeps them into dustpans and burns the idols and then pours the ashes over the graves of the people who lived the last uh, 57 years. And uh, Josiah leads this, uh, this, tenacious, uh, th- 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 this tenacious attack against idolatry. And uh, he leads Judah in a revival. About 15 miles uh, from, from the uh, uh, city of Jerusalem is the priest city of Anathoth. And around the same time, God is raising up a different leader for his people. Uh, one that is going to have a much longer lasting impact than that of the tenacious king. Uh, sadly, Josiah's revival is but a flash in the pan. It is here for a moment and it is gone the next. It does not last. And so God raises up this priest anointed as a prophet to lead his people for the next 70 years. That priest anointed prophet is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is going to be the prophet for the last five kings of Judah. Jeremiah is going to foretell and then see the destruction of Jerusalem. He's going to watch it from his, from his front porch as the city is burned, as the people are carried away captive. And he is going to weep as he sees the city he loves burns. That priest, anointed prophet, is Jeremiah. That's God's chosen Man. Now, according to the late Francis Schaeffer, he says that Jeremiah is the quintessential prophet to study for the postmodern era. That he provides us this in-depth look on an age much like our own, where society has turned its back on God and people have become post-Christian. So if nothing else tonight, my message should be relevant, okay? But that's actually not why I have you turn to the book of Jeremiah this evening. I have you turn to the book of Jeremiah tonight because some 2,000 years ago, a rabbi walked the ancient Near Eastern soils of the ancient Near Eastern world. His name was Jesus. 
Maybe you've heard of him. And in Matthew chapter 16, he turns to his disciples and he asks them this question. Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus uh, wants to do a little uh, in-depth research on himself. Uh, This is his way of Googling himself, okay? He says, uh, hey, when people talk about me, who do they say I am? When When people have a conversation about Jesus, who do they say I'm like? Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus asking this question. And in all three Gospels, Peter answers the question on behalf of the other disciples, as he typically does. But in Matthew's account... Peter's answer is slightly different than the other two. Peter answers the Lord. He says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you are Elias or Elijah. And then he said, and others, Matthew's insertion, say you're like Jeremiah. Now, John the Baptist, I get. Like, Jesus and John the Baptist were somewhat related. I mean, they were uh, cousins. Maybe they looked alike. Uh, They certainly preached the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, it's John the Baptist who's preaching on the morning that Jesus decides to show up to church. And he comes in through the back doors. And John the Baptist goes, hey, behold, the Son of Man, which taketh away the sins of the world. And it comes at that moment that John then takes the back seat. And Jesus takes the spotlight. And even John. John's followers followed Jesus to, 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 to now uh, traveling uh, with him, right? It's like they're preaching the same message. This, this kingdom of heaven is here, and it's time to repent, to turn your way. So I can see that uh, people would, would say, yeah, Jesus is John the Baptist. They're, they're, they're very similar in nature. Uh, perhaps they are the same guy, right? Uh, and then he, uh, he says, uh, Elias, right? Elijah. That one also makes sense to me. Elijah was a miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah's the one that we see uh, uh, take that little oil in that uh, woman's mill, and it it sustains for her. Uh, Elijah is one of the only accounts in the Old Testament where he sees someone raised from the dead at his prayer. And so now you've got Jesus on the scene, and he's doing these miracles where he's feeding multitudes with, with very small amount of bread. He's raising people from the dead. I could see people talking about Jesus and say, hey, he's doing some of the same things Elijah was doing. He's, uh, he's doing some things that Elijah uh, did. And so I could see them say, yeah, yeah. Some say you're like Elijah. But Jeremiah, well, Jeremiah just kind of makes me scratch my head. Jeremiah? Jeremiah writes a, um, a broken book. It's got a lot of chapters. None of it is in chronological order. In fact, if you uh, read through the uh, best chronological Bibles out there, they will reorder Jeremiah, and many of them will do it differently because it's just hard to tell what's happening where and how much of it is prophecy, how much of it is actually looking back, and it's just a broken book. Nobody listens to Jeremiah's preaching. Jeremiah does zero miracles. He sees zero work of God happen for him. Like, uh, like Jeremiah, he's crying throughout the most of the book. Like he's oh, this weeping prophet. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like I get John the Baptist and I totally get Elijah. But Jeremiah, like in what way was Jesus like Jeremiah? I just didn't get it. And so uh, I decided to study it out. Typically what I do, if I don't understand something, if I'm preaching through uh, the book of Matthew like we were in our church at the time, and I, I get assigned this section of scripture, and I just, I'm like, I just don't get the Jeremiah connection. I'll study it out. And uh, what I found, quite honestly, surprised me. These men are a lot more alike than we ever would think. 
Um, Jeremiah and Jesus are both a big fan of parables. Uh, They both speak parables constantly uh, through picture images. In fact, uh, Jeremiah speaks over 43 different parables in his book. 43. Now, um, not only do they both love parables, but they both seem to like the same parables. Because before before Jesus ever preaches a message about the sower and the seed, well, Jeremiah preaches that message in Jeremiah chapter 4. In fact, uh, Jesus' message on the vineyard and the vine, well, well, Jeremiah has a parable just like that. And so they're using similar parables, if not the same picture images, to communicate some of the exact same truths. Jeremiah also had a particular target in mind as he's preaching. He preaches uh, against the uh, court prophets, the priest of his day, and what he refers to as the shepherds, the the shepherds of Israel, those that were to lead the people. These three groups of people had failed to do what God had anointed them to do. They had failed to lead God's people, and Jeremiah pins the whole ship crumbling on them. It's the court prophets, it's the priests, and it is the shepherds who have led you astray. Well, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's got a particular target in mind, doesn't he? Like, if there's one group of people Jesus didn't get along with, it's the Pharisees and the scribes, and we'd probably add in the Sadducees if we really thought about it as well. And and what's ironic about that is that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the, the, the Sadducees are fulfilling the exact same roles in the New Testament that the Old Testament court prophets and priests and shepherds filled In the Old Testament, they're they're the same group of people, and they are going straight for the jugular. They're not holding back. They're going knockout fight against these Pharisees and scribes and these, these leaders of the people. Jeremiah is an end times prophet, and that he prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, Jeremiah lives to see that fulfilled in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar comes in with Babylon and overthrows Jerusalem and burns down the temple. Jesus, in like manner, is an end times prophet. And then in Matthew chapter 24, he foretells that the second temple will also be destroyed. Now, Jesus doesn't get to live to see this fulfilled, but in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' death, under Emperor Vespasian, Titus, the Roman general, comes through and he burns Jerusalem's temple down just as Jesus had prophesied. They are the same. And yet, through these harsh prophecies, through these harsh messages, they are not delivering these messages in anger, but rather Jeremiah and Jesus both deliver them through teary eyes through a broken heart jeremiah says i weep day and night oh that my head would be filled with water as i weep for the slain of the daughters of zion and it is jesus upon entering jerusalem for the first time in luke chapter 19 that he says he beheld the city and he wept bitterly and i don't know what you want to call that Uh, You might want to say, well, Jeremiah is foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus. You might want to say that Jesus is looking back towards the ministry of Jeremiah and putting on his Jeremiah impression. I I don't know what you want to call it. All I want you to get to understand tonight is that that's not by accident, okay? This is not a coincidence that these two men line up. This is significant in the text. They are trying to draw your attention that Jeremiah and Jesus were similar. They both had the heart of God. And so I have you turn to Jeremiah tonight because I have learned that when I read the words of Jeremiah, I grow closer to the heart of Jesus. 
That when I read the words of Jeremiah, I get insight into the movement and motive of the Lord Jesus himself. And so with that, can we look at chapter 2 tonight and look at verse number 1. We're probably going to only get through five verses here before I have to stop. So uh, there's a lot in here tonight. And I'm just going to say this, buckle up, because it's going to be a good. It's like sometimes the Lord just is good, you know. And his word is good tonight. And uh, I'm excited that the Holy Spirit led us here tonight. So look at chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse number 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee. The kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devoured him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity, Have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? So Jeremiah chapter 2 is uh, the Lord, right? You can look at this in, in, in in verse number 1. It is the Lord, and that Lord is translated as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is the translator's way of drawing your attention to the covenantial name of God. Okay, so this is not Elohim, this is not the creator God, this is not um, Adonai, the, the master God, this is uh, what, what, what used to be said, Jehovah, uh, now uh, typically scholars will, will settle on Yahweh, we don't know the vowels, because uh, Hebrew is a guttural language, there is no vowels, and so this is Y-H-W-H, this is, this, is the cov- this is the holy name of God, the name that you dare not speak in Israel, this is his sacred name. And this is, chapter 2, is that God, that covenantial name of God, building a case against his very own people. And he's going to primarily build that case through picture images, through parables. There's 16 in chapter 2 alone. We're not going to look at all 16. Uh, We'd be here a long time. So we're only going to look at really one tonight. But my point is that in verse number 5, the Lord poses a question that I believe sets up the major themes of Jeremiah's book. And I want to pose the question to you tonight. Have we strayed so far from the Lord in our vain pursuit of of purpose and meaning and satisfaction that we have become utterly worthless to God? Have we strayed so far from the Lord in our pursuit of purpose that we have become worthlessness to God himself. Wow. That's his question. He says, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Now, one of the primary things, one of the primary uh, motifs, if you will, that Jeremiah is going to lean on is going to be this idea of a covenant relationship. This is the covenantial name of God, and so he is going to bring them back towards that covenant that he established with them. So you you might notice the language in verse number 2 when he says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousal, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, 
in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. All that devoured him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. And he is drawing this people back to those words that, that God had called out to Abraham long ago. And he had established this covenant with Abraham. And now he's drawing their attention back to the Exodus where, where God rescued them from Egypt. So, so obviously this was God's hand rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he calls them out of Egypt and he gets them through the Red Sea. He, he, he makes it so they, the, the, so the Egyptians, they see no more. And then he calls them in that wilderness. He said, you were, you, you were in love with me. You, you chased after me in, in, in the wilderness. You followed me all the way to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, we have this reestablishment of the covenant of God. It was at Sinai that the cloud comes down, that the voice of the Lord desires to speak to all the people. But they're too, too afraid to hear it. And so Moses has to go up on behalf of the people. And it's there at Sinai that God reestablishes that Abrahamic covenant through Moses himself. Uh, Mount Sinai is the, um, the marriage ceremony, if you will. Uh, people have drawn the comparison that, that the cloud coming down over them is like, like the Jewish hoopla that, that, that you would get married under. This is, this is a very marriage language throughout the, the establishing of this covenant Drawing them back in to, 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 to the point that God himself has chosen this people to, to fulfill his covenant in. That he's going to bless them in order so that they might bless all nations through his name. And he's honoring them. He's, he's calling them back to that. Now you remember the story at Sinai when they, uh, Moses comes down after that meeting of getting the tablets. And he comes down and he finds the people dancing around a golden calf. This is not good. Uh, this is the equivalent of the best man, uh, or well, the, 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 the groom turning around to, to get the ring. He turns around and finds the bride making out with the best man. Like, this is, this is disaster. This is before the, the wedding has even commenced. There's already been a scandal. There's already been a, a adultery. There's already been a, a forsaking of him. Like, this is not good. And so Moses is irate because he knows God is going to be irate. And he goes back up into the mountain. And in this, like unpronounced thing, the Lord still shows abundant mercy on his people. He pronounces his name. That, that's when he gives them the name of the Lord, the Lord, who is full of compassion, who is abounding in mercy, who forgives iniquities and transgressions and sin. And, uh, and, and uh, man, I mean, this is beautiful, poetic, the, the traits of compassion of our God as he, he reestablishes it again with his people. Like these people were handpicked by God himself. He had chosen them. He had called them. He had continually pursued after them over and over and over again. These people knew who their God was. They knew. And so he says, what iniquity did you find in me that you have gone far from he says, Did, was I the one unfaithful? Was I the one that, that turned my back on you? Am I the one that, that, that did something wrong? Was I the one who, who cheated? Was I the one who broke my promise? Like, what iniquity did you find in me? That you have strayed far from me? 
he goes on in verse number 13, he gives us a parable to help us understand it, right? I like what she said, to, to make it dumb for us, right? This is great. She said, I would, I, I would never call you dumb, but she called you dumb. She said, but you have to dumb it down for us every once in a while. So look at verse number 13. He says, for my people have committed two evils. So he's summing it up. He's going to dumb it down for us. He's, he says, these are the two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this picture image of this fountain of living water is obviously a reference to these artisan springs that they know so well in their history because they are living in the desert. They are living in a place where it's dry. They're living in a place where you need water to live. Uh, you, you still need water to live. I don't know if you knew that, but you still need water to live. I'm learning that. I used to never drink water. I used to drink Mountain Dew on the sideline when I was playing basketball, okay? Uh, I mean, like, that's what I'd put in my Gatorade thing, you know? And uh, that, was, that was Eric's secret stuff. Just like Mike had his secret stuff, mine was Mountain Dew, okay? And I'm learning, you can't do that. That your body shuts down eventually, and so you've got to get water. And so I am trying to drink more water and be more fluent. But these people understood that. In fact, it was in their history. Uh, you'll remember, or maybe you won't remember, but there's like this whole section in Genesis where Isaac goes around buying a bunch of different land and he's digging wells just all over the place. What's he doing? He's not just digging a bunch of holes in the ground. He's not just, just trying to you know, have a, a, a collection of water. No, no, no. He's looking for that artisan spring, this picture of, of, of life fresh water that would flow directly to you. This was a constant supply of good, fresh, life-giving water that came directly to you. And water was a lot of work. And so when you found an artisan spring, it became priceless. It became invaluable because it was just water that would constantly refresh and replenish. And for the Israelites, well, water, this, this artisan spring had become this picture of what God was doing for them. That he was constantly coming to them. That he was constantly nourishing them. That he was constantly sustaining them. Uh, they can't stay at the well in, in Isaac's day. No, no, no. Remember they go to Egypt and they're being called out of Egypt. And so on that journey through the wilderness, well, they get thirsty. They're, they're dying of thirst. And they come to the rivers of Mara. They found water, but it's not fresh water. No, it's bitter water. It's undrinkable, it cannot nourish, it cannot satisfy. And so Moses takes the stick and he puts it in the water and through putting the cross in the water, the water turns sweet. No man, that could preach, but it's not going to tonight. And so he puts the water in the, in the bitter water and the water turns fresh. But the, the river of Mara is a small river. Uh, and so they've got to go individually to get the water. Family unit after family. Can you imagine how long that took? This whole nation marching, and they got to go one by one to the rivers of Mara to drink. And chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, Exodus ends by saying they round the corner and they find the oasis of Elium that had 13 springs of living water running, flowing, you know, constant water supply. You know, it's like uh, lesson, lesson learned. Always wait. God's got something better for you than Mara, you know. Uh, always go to the oasis of Elium, right? That's the water you need. That's the fresh. That's the constant supply of life-giving water. That was God's hand at work. But they can't stay there. They got to keep going. They're going to the promised land. And they get thirsty again. 
in. And so God says, okay, take your stick, hit the rock, and water will come out. And so Moses takes the stick, and he hits the rock, and water comes out, and they're nourished by water from the Lord. This, this was the picture, that God's water, was, that God was always their water. He was always their source of life. He was always their, their supply. He was always there to nourish and fill and, and, and sustain them when times got hard. He was always their supply. It was in their history. It was in their heritage. It was also in their hymn book. For they would go to the song. Uh, they, 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 they would go into the sanctuary and they would sing psalms like Psalm sixty-three that says, "Oh God, Thou art my God. Early will I search for Thee. Early will I seek Thee. For my soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and weary land where no water is." These people understood. In the words of Jesus, they were to be blessed if they would hunger and thirst after righteousness. If they would search for him, he would fill, he would satisfy, he would nourish because they had the water. He chose them. He came to them. My friends, he came to us. He came to us. On Calvary, he poured out his blood to sustain us, to give us life, to give us freedom, to give us nourishment. And just like the Israelites, we forsake him over and over and over and over again. And for what? Broken cisterns. He says, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, for cisterns. You've hewn yourself out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In, in the words of his question, he says, uh, what iniquity have you found in me that you have gone far from me and you have searched after vanity? That word vanity, it's the Hebrew word havel. Sometimes it shows up as havel shavel. It's this uh, tongue twister automatopoeia that just simply means utter worthlessness, utter emptiness. It's used 73 times in your Old Testament, and it is always used by God, and it is always his view of the idols we chase after. Havel. It's Havel Shavel. It's utter worthlessness. It's utter emptiness. It's things that, that, that promise satisfaction that cannot satisfy. Now, we don't have to go to other passages to see this word at play. We can look right here in Jeremiah chapter 2. He likes this word quite a bit. So look at verse number 6. Verse number 6. He says, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through, a land that uh, no man passed through, and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land. You made mine inheritance an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that Havel do not profit. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. 
And with your children's children will I plead for pass over the isles of Chittim and see and send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their, changed their glory for that which Havel doth not profit? Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's he saying? He says, go ahead and go, go, go look at the pagan cities of Chittim and Kedar. Go ahead and check out their temples. Have they changed their gods? Have they forsaken their gods for another god? No, no, no. They've stayed true to their gods. They've stayed true to their statues that have eyes but can't see and ears that can't hear and a mouth that cannot speak. They've stayed faithful to worship their golden images. But my people who are called by my name, who have seen me sustain and lead who have seen me speak, who have seen me lead, who have seen me deliver. Oh man, they have changed their glory. They have forsaken me and they've sought after things that do not profit. They have, they have sought after worthlessness. They have sought after Havel. We see in verse number 19, he compares them to a harlot who has gone after um, who has gone after other, uh, 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 other lovers. In verse number 27, he says, uh, saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back on me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? He says, where are the gods that you serve when you need them? When you need sustainment, where are your idols? When you need something that's going to satisfy, why do you keep going to the things that never will? Why do you forsake the fountain of living water for, for a, a cistern? He says, you've hewn out cisterns that can hold no water. He says, you've dug real deep. You've worked real hard to try to replace me. But all you've ended up with is a cheap substitute. All you've ended up with is a cheap, a broken cistern that can hold no water. You know, the moment you put life-giving water into a well, it ceases to be life-giving. The moment you put living water in a well, it ceases to be living. Uh, it stops moving. The sun hits it. It becomes stagnant and stale. Deterioration sets in, and it becomes undrinkable. It, it, it's not worth it. Uh, when we were building our van out, uh, we, were, uh, we, we, we travel in a, 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 a Ram ProMaster that we've kind of converted ourselves and uh, had some other people help us uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, get uh, the plumbing right. And I think Pastor helped us with the plumbing and uh, we've got solar panels on it. We've got beds in there and we've just recently reconverted it to try to add another seat for our two-month-old. And so we've, uh, we, but we still travel in that and it's been real. The Lord just blessed us with it and we're so thankful to be able to travel all together to most of our places and the van's held up real good never had to take it into a mechanic to fix anything. We've had to replace some tires, but nothing, 
Nothing major, and so we've been very blessed to have that. But when we were first building it out, we were looking at all the YouTube videos and things like that. And most of those YouTube videos are like a husband and his wife. They've got no kids, never plan to have kids, never want kids. And so uh, they've got all the space to do all the stuff in the van. And so you, you, you get a lot of ideas, but not a lot of them you can use because, uh, well, you've got to put three car seats in the van, you know. And so, uh, so, th- so we were trying to think, what are the essentials? Like, what do we desperately need, you know? And one of the things that came up immediately was water. We've got to have water in the van. I gotta have a sink because we gotta brush our teeth at night. We gotta wash some dishes. We gotta have some sort of water to drink to refill, you know, our cups and uh, you know on the road. And so, uh, so we gotta have a sink. We gotta have water. And so I said, okay. So my wife, she's a, she's a research fanatic. Okay, she'll research everything. She's in depth. She's gonna make sure that you get the best thing and the best deal for the best price, you know. And and uh, and so uh, so she's looking and she sends me this link. She says, what do you think about this for a water filter system? I said, a water filter system. Okay, so I look at it, and it's this, it's this thing. You were talking about osmosis or whatever it is. I mean, it's this massive thing. Like, it's going to take up the whole back of the van. And it, it's the seven, or I think it was like five filter system, you know. And apparently, you, you get it all set up, and you attach it to your, your water tank, and you attach it to your water pump, and so, so you turn the faucet on, and the water starts pulling from your, from, from, from your tank, and it goes through the first filter and filters out certain things. It goes to the second one and filters it again, and then the third and the fourth. And so then by the fifth, you're getting like natural, spraying, good, fresh, clean water, you know. So like the way it works, you know, you go, you say, man, I need a drink. So you get your cup out, you put it on the faucet, you turn it on, and 30 minutes later, your water comes out, you know, because it has to go through the whole process, you know. And I'm like, babe, first of all, this thing's way too expensive. Secondly, it's massive. We got to get other stuff in the van, too, like beds, you know. That was what we said was essential. We got to have a place to sleep, you know. And I'm like, there's no way we can do that. You're going to have to find something else. Have you ever heard of, like, a Brita filter, you know? Like, let's get, like, one of those pitcher things, you know. I'm sure that will work just as good. She says, no, it won't. And so she started doing some more research, and she said, okay, this is what I found. And uh, it was this little pitcher. Had a little top on it, and uh, in the top was a, a filter, and it would filter it twice. It would go through and then go through again. It would filter the water twice and pour it in the pitcher, and, and uh, it was much smaller. It could fit in the fridge, and I said, yep, that's the one we're getting. Buy it. Yeah, it's uh, significantly cheaper. Sounds good to me. Sparks a lot of joy, you know, and so uh, we got it, and, uh, and uh, it was good. I mean, it was one of those, those waters where, where you we'd take it out you, you're in a hot day. You pour it into a cup, and you, you, you take a drink, and you know that water. It's not Aquafina, you know. No, no, it's like that Fiji water, you know. Ah, that's good water. You know, that one is good water. That one came off of a mountain somewhere. You know, that one was good, fresh, clean water. I love that little picture. I would drink from that all the time. I would be pouring new water into it and then uh, pouring it into my cup and drinking. I loved drinking from that water. Well, COVID hit, and so we uh, came off the road for a little bit. And uh, then in September, uh, COVID, uh, well, was still around, but churches were kind of getting, most churches were getting back to normal. We were having revival meetings again, and so we were loading up the van again, you know. And so uh, it, it's, it's August when I'm loading the van up, okay? So I'm loading the van up to get ready for our spring meetings, and it's hot. We live in Yuma, Arizona. It's like 114 degrees. It's burning hot. Anytime you load the van in Yuma, you've got to shower before and after, okay? I mean, you're just like filled. I mean, you're just sweating, pouring through as you're loading luggage and getting all the stuff in. And so I'm loading this van in the hot uh, sun, and I'm sweating through my shirt. And I open that fridge, and I pull out that pitcher of water, and I pour it into a glass. And I take a drink, expecting to be refreshed, expecting to be renewed, expecting to... ah, But I did not go... ah, No, no, no. I went... 
was so nasty. It was worse than Aquafina. I mean, it was so gross. Oh, man, I ran into the house. I said, Lexa, this thing you bought is garbage. This thing is disgusting. I was like, why did you buy this? We should have got the seven filter system. I said it was okay, you know. And I'm like, why would you buy this lousy thing? And she looked at me and she said, Eric, that thing has been sitting in the van for four months. Of course it's gross. Of course it's nasty. Of course it's not satisfying you. Of course it's not going to give you a refreshment. That's not life-giving water. And I tell you, sometimes I think we think that what we're doing in our spiritual lives has given us life. When in reality, we're drinking from hot well water. We're drinking from dead, nasty, unfulfilling well water. And, and the message of Jeremiah is that you either live by the stream or you perish. You either sustain yourself with the life-giving water or you perish. Because broken cisterns will always lead to broken systems. When you forsake the fountain of living water, and you build yourself a, a, a cistern, what you are left with is the stagnant, shallow, uh, uh, un, ungiving system of religion. That's what you're left with. You're left with religion. And the sad truth about it is that all of the things that God ordains all the things that, that God sets up to, to, to be pillars that, that build off of the foundation of this life-giving relationship with him, well, all of that other stuff, well, it just becomes worthlessness. It becomes good for nothing. In fact, that's what he says. He says, uh, you've forsaken me, you've sought after vanity, and you have become vain. You yourself have become worthlessness. I mean, just think about the picture images that, that he's been building. He says, you've, you, you, you've forsaken the fountain. You've, you've built yourself the cistern, but it's a broken cistern that can hold no water. Well, what good is a well that can't hold water? It's useless. It's worthlessness. And he says, listen, all the stuff that, that you are conducting, well, it's all worthlessness because you are not drinking from the fountain. He says, you're, you're settling for all this other stuff, and it's all just worthlessness to God. Now, the primary thing that Jeremiah is referencing here is their temple worship. And so in order to see that, we got to go to Jeremiah chapter 7. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. And we'll finish here tonight. You've listened well. And this is where, this is where I think the scripture just really ends up teaching us tonight. So, so, so stay locked in. Chapter 7, Jeremiah, uh, the, the Bible says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Okay, so you got to understand a couple things. Jeremiah is a prophet, right? He is a, a prophet is one who says what God tells him to say. So he is a, a proclaimer of truth. And so uh, Jeremiah is a preacher. And so God comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, you're preaching today. Jeremiah goes, oh, yes, I love preaching. Awesome. Hey, where am I preaching, Lord? He says, you're going to preach at the temple gate. Go stand in the gate of the temple and preach. And Jeremiah goes, ooh, temple gate. There's going to be a lot of people there. All right. Hey. 
That's, that's going to be good. All right. And so he starts getting to go into the temple. He says, uh, so what am I going to preach? Well, what's the message, Lord? This is the message. All right. He says, stand in the gate of the temple. Say, hear ye the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that Havel cannot profit. Will ye still murder and commit adultery and swear? falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods whom you know not and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do all these abominations is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes behold even I have seen it saith the Lord um are you sure that's the message you want me to preach, Lord? Uh, I don't think that's going to go over so well, Jesus. Uh, uh, God, I think, uh, I think that might get me killed. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's going to be the one that, uh, that, that they throw me in the well for, you know? Uh, this is not going to go well. He says, are you sure? I mean, just think about it. The Lord says, go to the temple. This is the message. I want you to stand up, and I want you to say, welcome to church, you lying hypocrites. Come on in. Welcome. Bible said, God told me this morning, you need to repent. You need to amend your ways and your doings. You come to the temple and you, I heard you, you were singing the Psalms on your way in. I, I watched you, you, you were cleansing yourself in the mikvah, getting ceremoniously cleaned, enter in. I saw you purchasing your sacrifices out there and getting ready to sacrifice them to the Lord. But guess what? He says it's worthlessness. He says you're trusting in lying words that cannot profit, that, that, that you've been going out and you've been uh, murdering, you've been committing adultery, you, you've, been, you've been swearing falsely against your neighbor, you've been burning incense unto Baal. He says, and then you come to the Lord's house and you're like this, this big hideout for all the criminals and you're like, hey, we're just in here to, 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 to be buddy-buddy with one another and hey, we got the temple of the Lord. Hey, hey, hey. we got the, the right clothes on, we're offering the right sacrifices. Hey, all is good in the name of the Lord. No, no, no. The Lord's left. The Lord's not here. The Lord's presence is gone from this place. You've been drinking from the well water too long. Your, your, your religion is dead. It is shallow. Now, please hear me. These are people who come to church or who come to the temple week in and week out. They're there every day. They're there worshiping every week. They're there offering sacrifices exactly according to the Levitical law every single week. They're doing all of the things correctly. They are, they are worshiping God on the way in. They're cleansing themselves in the mikvah. They would have never dared enter the temple without doing these things. They're washing themselves ceremoniously to enter in. They're singing the songs on the way in. These are people who know their text. They've got it down. And yet God says it's all worthlessness. He says, you are trusting in lying words that cannot profit. 
He says, all of this is just an outward show. He says, uh, yeah, you're doing all these things. You're offering sacrifices, but you're certainly not living like those sacrifices mean anything. He says, you go out and you claim that you're close to the heart of God because you've done all this. But he says, no, no, no. You need to amend your ways and your doings. And he gives them clear things that, that they need to start doing. He says, because he says in verse number five, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your herd, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But behold, ye trust in lying words that Havel. He says, no, no, if you want to get close to Jesus, well, then start taking care of the neighbor and start loving on the foreigner and start, and start opening your hands in love and acceptance to those around you and draw them closer to the heart of God. No, no, no. You don't get closer to the heart of God by making sure you're clean. No, no, no. You know your heart, you, you know your heart is close to God when you're bringing others closer to God, not just yourself. It's not about a you. It's, it's about a we. It's about collectively. It's about bringing others in and you are going out and you're treating others falsely and you're bearing iniquity and you're living in sin and you're murdering, you're adultery, you're burning incense unto Baal. If you look at the ways of Josiah's day, they were sacrificing their kids unto the pagan god Moloch. They were doing all of this horrible stuff in order to win the aid of Egypt in the war against Babylon. Like, this is... This is not people, these are not people who are trusting in the Lord and, 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 and preaching and living how they preach. No, no, no. This is all just a show. This is all just a performance. And they believe that as long as we keep the temple stuff, as long as we sing the right song and wear the right thing and do the right things and, and sacrifice the right sacrifices, then God, well, like they said, we are delivered to do all of these abominations. But as long as we just do all the right things, as long as we get, as long as we check all the boxes, we're delivered to do all to do how, to live however we want. And God says that's wrong. That is not how you're delivered. That is not what you're. That is, you think you're close to the heart of God, yet you are. You have never been further from God. In fact, Jesus says it this way to the Pharisees and scribes. He says, "This people draw nigh to me with their lips, and they honor me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is not." After mine own. Now, if you recognize the words of Jeremiah here, when he says, You've made my house into a den of robbers, as the words of Jesus, it's because they are the words of Jesus. This is the exact quotation that Jesus uses when he enters into the temple and he overturns the money changing table and he says, you've made my house, which is called the house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And I quote from Jeremiah. Now I challenge you, anytime you see an I quote in scripture, go back and look at the whole context of that scripture. Because that's how Jesus is using it. He's not just pulling out a verse and using it. No, no, no. He is speaking into the whole context of Jeremiah 7. And he is speaking it into his current context of the day. So like we, we use this passage to be like, see, God got righteously angry about uh, uh, merchandise being sold in his tabernacle. Okay. But it's much more than that. Okay. Jesus goes to the Gentile court, which is where this sermon is preached in Jeremiah a place where the Gentiles were to come in and worship the God of Israel. See, 
God had always allowed a space for the Gentiles to worship him. Why? Because he's not just a God for Jews. He has always been a God for the Gentiles as well. He has always been the God of everyone. And so he, he has always had this place where the Gentiles had come in and worshiped the God that they worshiped. And so Jesus comes into the Gentile courtyard and he finds these, these money-changing tables, these, these sacrificial tables set up. And this is how it would work. If a Gentile came into the temple in Jesus' day, they would be stopped. And they would say, welcome to the temple. We're glad you're here. Uh, glad you've chosen to worship the, the one true God today. Um, and so uh, you need to bring a sacrifice. And if they brought their own sacrifice, they would say, well, we don't know if you've raised that correctly. We don't know if you've fed that, the things that it's supposed to be fed. And so we can't offer that sacrifice to God. Uh, that, would be, that would be wrong for you. It would be wrong for us. And so what you need to do is buy a sacrifice. We, we, we've raised the sacrifices, right? And, uh, and we're going to have to charge you a little extra for that because we put all the work in. And so uh, we're going to have to charge a little extra. And so that, that Gentile would pull out some Roman money, no doubt, the money that was available to him. And he would put it on the table to try to buy the correct sacrifice. And they would look at it. And the, the Sadducees of the day would look at it and they'd say... Sorry, we can't take Roman money. Uh, that has Caesar's face on it. We can't take money that, that belongs to Caesar. But right outside the temple, we've got uh, some tables set up where you can exchange that money for Jewish money with a tax. And so they'd go out and they'd have to pay more money than they needed to to exchange their money for Jewish money. Then they would have to go back into the temple and pay a, a premium on the sacrifice that they needed to offer. Do you see what's happening here? They're being unjust to their neighbors. They're not taking care of the foreigners. It's the same problems that Jeremiah's day struggled with. And Jesus comes in and he flips over the tables and he quotes Jeremiah to say, listen, the same thing that got the first temple burned is the same thing that's going to get this temple burned. You haven't learned a thing. You're still chasing after vanity. You're chasing after greed and wealth and power when you should be searching after people and souls and drawing them closer. You are making it difficult for people to worship God. This is a place that's supposed to be a house of prayer. That's supposed to be a house where we communicate with God, where we call out to God, where we fellowship with God. But you've just made it a place of religion. You've just made it a place of, of, of a bunch of hideout for criminals. Well, guess what? God's seen it. And in Jesus' day, he says, God's here to correct it. He says, I'm tired of the vanity that you so hopelessly search after. He says, it's all just worthlessness. I got to tell you, I'm an expert in church. Uh, I was in 850 services last year. Yeah, that's a lot. My family goes to church a lot. It's always been that way. I grew up going to church. We were in church all the time. I started going to church nine months before I was born. You know what I mean? And uh, if I ever woke up and felt like, I don't really want to go to church today, I would get beat until I did want to go to church. I mean, that was just, that was the way it was. I'm just kidding. My parents are great people now. But uh, just kidding. We were always in church. Dad was always preaching. This past year, I think uh, in 2020, I think I preached over 180 times. Uh, we, we were all, I mean, way more than that. We, we were always. Last year, God was good to us. And, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. I grew up in, I grew up in a, a large church in California. I went to a Christian school. They had chapel three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I went to a Bible college where they had chapel every day of the week. 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday dorm devotions, soul winning rallies, Tuesday night missionary prayer band meeting. You know, we were always listening to preaching. Even when there wasn't like a scheduled preaching event, there was always somebody that was like, hey, sit down. I want to preach to you. You know, there's just always preaching going on. And, uh, and I've, I've heard a lot of messages. I've preached a lot of messages. I went to a large church. And I can hardly remember, in fact, I can't. I've tried to remember a Sunday where someone did not get saved at one of the services. We were always having people be saved at at the church I grew up in. And not only that, but then, like, I I can only remember, like, I think when I sat down and actually, like, tried to think of it, I think I remembered four times where they didn't have a baptism after the service. Like, there was always someone in the baptismal tank. They were always uh, baptizing someone. And it wasn't just that, because, like, a few weeks later, like, every once in a while on a Wednesday night, they would announce, like, uh, these people have just finished discipleship. And uh, they would pass out certificates to people. And they were people that you had seen be baptized, like, a, a couple months later. And then it wasn't just that, because, like, a year later, you'd switch Sunday school classes and you'd walk and you'd see the dude who had gotten a certificate and he'd been baptized and he had been saved. Like, I'm trying to say there was life there. There was life at the place I grew up. There were people's lives being truly changed by the word of God, by Jesus Christ. Uh, and, so, and so what I'm about to say has nothing to do with the place I grew up. It has everything to do with myself. Um, rarely do I remember going to church and feeling like, whoa. There are very few times, maybe a handful of times, where I remember going to church and leaving, feeling like, yeah, that was it. That, that, that was what I needed. That was good. That was, that was spirit-filled. That's exa- if I could just bottle that up. Oh, man, if I could bottle that up and drink it every day, that would be how I want to live my life. No, most of the time I came to church and I left and nothing was different. Sunday was a, uh, a regular routine. It was just a, a thing in the pattern, uh, something you did. And it wasn't that we weren't in our Bibles. In fact, we were always in our Bible. We were always reading the scriptures, but, but it just didn't really change anything. Was, mm, like I remember, I'd, I'd sit in a service and, and like the Lord would speak to me and I, I would hit the altar. I'd make a decision. I'd go home and I'd say, yeah, this is it. Like this is, this is, this is it. This is, this is gonna change my life. And I'd go home and I'd realize I still struggle with bitterness. I still struggle with my anger. I still have a, a, a short temper. I still struggle with lust. I'm still not very kind to my, my family. I'm still not really, I'm pretty harsh to my, my wife and my kids. Like I'd, I'd come home and I have all these problems. And so it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll try again next week. And that's what church became for me. It became like this big try again service, you know, where you'd come in after you'd fallen and felled and you would just try to plug in and try to try again harder this week, you know, like just try harder, just keep trying and eventually it'll change. Keep faking it until you make it, you know, and, uh, and, and you'd, you'd hear a message and you're like, well, that wasn't as good as last week, but that's okay. I remember last week I got my notes and so go home. Here we go. Here comes the change. No, I still have it. I still have all my problems. I still have all the same things. Nothing's changing. And so you do that long enough, and eventually you start wondering why you keep going. And you do that long enough, and even after you preach a message, and people are shaking their hands saying, hey, that was great, preacher. That was really good today. And you're sitting there like, oh, I'm glad, glad the Lord's using it in your life. He ain't using it in mine. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're forgiven. <laughs> I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're able to get over your bitterness. I'm not able to get over mine. 
I go home and I just feel like this, this weight of these, these struggles. And I'd, I'd cry out and say, God, I keep struggling with this. God, help me to try harder and be better and do right. I'm doing all the right things. I've got all those hymns memorized, you know. I got them down except for the second verses, okay. I don't have the second verse down, but I got the first and the last down, okay. And this is just try harder. And I'm wearing the, wearing the right thing and I'm preaching the right stuff. And so eventually God's going to... God's going to do it. The light bulb's going to click. And the light bulb never clicked. I kept getting frustrated. I kept going home shallow, feeling like I didn't have life. Frustrated. I tell you, eventually you do that long enough and you start asking yourself, why do you keep going? It's not making any difference. It's not changing anything. It's not working. So why do you keep going? Like, are you just going to... Uh, Make sure everybody else knows you got it together. Because I don't have it together. My marriage was struggling. My kids were a disaster. My, my home life wasn't great. My thought life was impure. I was struggling. I was struggling. But on Sunday, man, get in the car, everybody. We're going to church. Get in the car now, you know. You're, you're yelling at each other all the way to church. And you get it. Hey, brother, how's it going? God you this morning. Oh, let's sing our song. Oh, victory in Jesus. Stand up and sing now. You know? It's just all this, 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 this show. It's not real. It's just this performance for others. So I got to a place where I just said, this is worthlessness. This isn't helping. This isn't doing anything. And I'm starting to realize that I was relying on all this other stuff to, like, fill me up. That I was relying on the church and, and the pew and, and, the, and the, the suit and the tie. I was, I, was, I was relying on the stuff I wore and the music I sung and the way that the, the lights were up on the stage. Like, I was, I was trusting in that to give me life. And I says, well, this, this, this group just has it wrong. I got to go to a church that has, you know, newer songs and different style of dress. And then you go there and then you realize... Still, still got all my sins. You can change the suit and tie, but you can't change the heart. And the music was different, but the sin was still there. And the struggles were still real. And you're just like, well, there's not hope here, and there's not hope here. And, and you know what I'm learning? I'm learning that you were never meant to satisfy yourself from the cistern. This stuff was never meant to give you life. If you're relying on this to fill you up, then you're, you're drinking from a broken cistern that cannot satisfy. The only thing that can satisfy is the fountain of living water. You've got to go back to him. It's got to go back to a real relationship with Jesus. And so the message of Jeremiah is run back to the stream. Stop trusting in the cistern. Stop trusting in your religion. Stop trusting in your rules. Stop trusting in your rituals. Go back to the relationship that the fountain poured out for you. And it's not just the message of Jeremiah. It's the message of Jesus as well. For Jesus comes in the gospel of John and he sits at a well in Samaria, a well in Samaria. And he says to that woman, get me a drink. And she says, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't ask me for a drink. And he says, well, if you knew I was, you would have asked me for a drink. For the water that I shall give you shall be in you, shall be in your, in your stomach, in your belly. A well, the Greek word there is an artistian spring, a fountain of living water 
to everlasting life. Two chapters later in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Any man that come to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. A chapter later in John chapter 7. They're celebrating the Feast of Sukkot, which is uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. This time where where they would remember their wilderness wandering in the desert. They would meditate as they fasted through through three to four days, fasting and and remembering what it was like to be in want of water and and thirsting after God in that wilderness. And, And on the last day, the seventh day, the great day of the feast, they would gather together at the temple and the, and, and the priest would come out with this pitcher of uh, an empty pitcher and he would hold it up and, and they would line the streets. They would start shaking their palm branches as they began to mimic the sounds of thunder and lightning, asking God to, to supply and fill. And that priest would march down from the temple. He'd go all the way down to, to, to this well that, that kind of was a storehouse of fresh water for them. And he, he would lift up the, the pitcher filled with water and he would march all the way back as the people in the streets began to, to, to scream, Jehovah and Yahweh can satisfy it. And as they got back up, they, 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 they would get to the, to the sacrifice and he would pour that water over the sacrifice and everybody would go silent as he poured the, sa- the water over the sacrifice. And it was their way of saying, Lord, we need you to fill. We need you to bring water for this next season. We, are, we, we have been in drought for so long. We are trusting you for harvest. And the Bible says in John chapter 7, in the last day of that feast, Jesus cried out. Oh man, I think he cries out right as he's about to pour that water. As the crowd goes silent, Jesus screams, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. For he that believeth in me, as the scriptures have saith, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And the Bible says, and he spake that of the spirit, which had not yet come. I'm telling you, church, we've got to ask ourselves a question tonight. Where's the spirit of God in our churches? We wonder why we're dry. We wonder why we're thirsty. We wonder why all the routine just seems so stagnant and shallow. We've got to ask ourselves, where's the spirit of God? Where is the Spirit of God? You know, too often we have put the Spirit of God as the third member of the Trinity. Like he's, it's like a hierarchy, you know. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we'd love to replace them with like the Holy Scriptures, but like we just can't do that theologically. So he's there. But, you know, when it comes to church, we got our cue cards, you know. We got our professionalism. We got no room for the Spirit of God to work. No room for Him. And if you were to ask like, people, like, so like, what does the Spirit of God do? Like, what, what does He actually do? He's God, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah He's God. So what does He do? Um, what do you mean, what does He do? Like, what does He do? What does the Spirit of God do? Um, he convicts us of sin. Awesome. What else? Pretty sure that's it, preacher. Like, pretty sure he just makes us feel really bad about ourselves, and that's it. You know, like, no, no, no. He's God, but he only does one thing. No, come on. You, you can think harder than that. What, what does the Spirit of God do? I've had these conversations. And, he, you know, they're like, well, I think the Spirit of God helps me understand my Bible when I read it. Well, that's great. Do you understand your Bible when you read it? Not really. 
oh, okay, so he's God, but he's not very good at his job, you know? Like, that doesn't seem right. Like, what does the Spirit of God do? What is he supposed to do? Like, what does he enable you to do? Oh, um, yeah, 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 you're right, yeah. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Yeah, all the things that you, like, wish you had but you don't have, right? Yeah, yeah, So that's the Spirit, that's the fruit of the Spirit, uh-huh. And you don't have it. I've got some of it. I don't know, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So you either have it all or you don't have it at all. You can muster up some man-made love, but you can't muster up Holy Spirit love. You can muster up some patience, but you can't muster up Holy Spirit patience. No, no, only the fruit of the Spirit can do that. And so, like, you talk to most people and talk to myself. I didn't have that. I didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. I didn't have joy. I didn't have peace. No. Okay, uh, well, there's the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, that's right. Which one did you get? I don't think I got one. Not how it works. Right? I don't know. Paul, Paul, when he describes the gifts of the Spirit, he says that it's like a body fit together for the work of God. Because what good is a body if it's all eyes and no ears? It just looks like a weird looking head, right? Like, no, no. You've you got to have eyes, you've got to have ears, you've got to have a mouth, you've got to have feet, you've got to have legs, arms, right? He says all of the gifting of the Spirit. Every single person has a gift given to them by the Spirit of God so that you can function and do what a church is supposed to do. See, the church isn't a place where we just come and sing and shake hands with one another. No, no. A church is a place where we come in filled with the Spirit, allow the Spirit to activate and work amongst us and encourage and edify and lift up one another through the Spirit of God as we look into His Word and the Spirit of God teaches and convicts and mends and comforts. Like, that's the work of the Spirit. That's what the church is supposed to be about. And I'm finding that the reason we so lack revival is because we so lack the desire for the Spirit of God. Man, I read people like D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Those people were bent on the Spirit of God filling and directing and anointing and using and pouring out amongst them. When they, were, when they described the revivals they were in, they talk about the fact they couldn't control it. They couldn't contain it. People falling down left and right. Like, I mean, they talk about some stuff. You're like, are you sure they weren't Pentecostal? Because that's how we treat it. We're like, oh, uh, if you like the Spirit, there's a church down the road that's real good at the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. They don't have a monopoly on the Spirit of God. Come on, church. Come on, church. We don't have revival today because we don't have any interest in the Spirit. We are too uncomfortable with something going out of order. No. The Spirit of God says, hey, you come in, you sit, you dine, you feast, and you get filled up so that you can then be poured out. And so many times in my life, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel for the Spirit of God. Come on, Lord. I need a little bit of gifting tonight to preach. Come on, get that last little bit of ice cream out of the, uh, out of the tub so I can, I can pour out. I don't know. It's easy to love your neighbor when you're filled with the Spirit. It's easy to have the heart of Jesus when you're filled with the Spirit. It's easy to be poured out when you're filled with the Spirit. And the reason we so lack the Spirit of God is because we are so uninterested in His filling. We have become used to the routine. We have become used to living without Him. And we have calloused our hearts to not need Him. Oh, church, we've grieved Him tonight. We've quenched Him tonight. 
And it's time we get a fresh anointing of the Spirit of God. You want to know how this church gets the Spirit of God? The only time this church gets any ounce of the Spirit of God is when you come in filled with the Spirit of God. That's where the Holy Spirit is. We don't go to a temple anymore. We are the temple. The Holy Ghost has taken up residency in us. So we come, like, like the Holy Spirit doesn't seep through the walls when it's Sunday. No, he doesn't come up through the pews when the preaching gets real high. Like, ooh, the Spirit of God's here. No, no, no. He's in you, church. He's in you. And if you want power in your church, well, then you've got to come in filled with his power, living as his temple. That's where the problem lies. I'm telling you, it's time to run back to the fountain. Can I tell you, it's still flowing tonight. And I can speak from experience. It's still healing marriages. It's still helping you raise your children. It's still giving you joy in serving the Lord. It's still filling your heart with peace and a world and a climate and a job that could be filled with anxiety. I'm telling you, the Spirit of God has completely reordered my life in the last year. In the last year, the well is not worth it. Stop building up cisterns. And run after the fountain. He's still flowing. In the words of Jeremiah, amend your ways and your doings. Come back to the fountain. Oh, Lord, we thank you tonight that you are not dry, that you never run out, that the fountain flows so freely tonight. And, Lord, any man can drink of you. Oh, Lord, any man can drink of you. Any woman, any child can drink of the fountain tonight. And get filled. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would repent of our doings. That we would amend our ways tonight. That, Lord, we, 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 would, we would acknowledge the grieving of your spirit in our churches and in our lives. Lord, we would acknowledge the ways in which we have failed to allow you to flow amongst us. Oh, Lord, you, you, you are there. You, you have taken residency in us as believers But oh, how often you get shoved to the bottom with all the dirt and the muck that we try to fill up to satisfy us and to fulfill us and to sustain us. That's where it goes, man. The church doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't fill us and give us life. So we run to the things of this world and we got the entertainment to try to fill us up. We got got the, 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 the pleasures of this life to try to fill us up. And that stuff doesn't satisfy. That stuff still leaves us empty and dry. That stuff can't give us life. Oh, Lord, we gotta, we, we, we gotta get our shovels out tonight. And we, we gotta, we gotta unclog the, 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 the fountain of our heart. And we've gotta allow the Spirit of God to begin to flow and nourish again. Oh, Lord. Lord, may we confess tonight the ways that we have grieved and quenched your Spirit. And Lord, may we receive a fresh anointing as we yield ourselves over to the Spirit of God. And may you do amongst us what you did in Jesus' day. May we see the fruit of the Spirit begin to abound in our churches. May there be an attraction to our church, not because of our program, not because of our preaching, but because of our ministry of the Spirit of God amongst us. Oh, Lord, you're still delivering. You're still healing. You are still mending. You are still comforting. 
the work of the Spirit is alive and well today. May we drink from the fountain. Heads are bowed, eyes are